Hello and welcome to the Multiplanetary Society podcast, where we explore topics related to the space economy and the why and how of potentially becoming a multiplanetary species. I'm your host, Timothy Reuter. Today, we are pleased to have with us Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency Program Manager, Dr. Michael Orbit Nyack. Prior to DARPA, Dr. Nyack worked as a space shuttle engineer, flight director for multiple experimental spacecraft, a skydiving instructor, a planetary scientist at NASA Ames, research section chief for DOD's largest telescope, instructor flight test engineer, and many other roles as well. Dr. Nyack, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are a leader for DARPA's lunar portfolio, which includes the recently awarded 10-year lunar architecture project. This project has always seemed a little different from typical DARPA projects that are usually more oriented towards a particular technology or outcome. Can you talk about how this project came about and what was the thinking behind it? Yes, absolutely. You are correct that this is not your typical DARPA program. Uh, and in fact, that's I, I view that as a good thing. Uh, so as you know, DARPA has this unique place in the in the R&D environment mm -hmm. where we are, we're trying new things. And so, you know, this is a new kind of program. However, to answer your question, um, so Luna 10 is specifically aimed at identifying risks and commercial solutions to this integrated future lunar infrastructure for uh, peaceful U.S. and international use. Now, that's a huge goal, right? I think I think we can all agree on that. There's so many things that need to be done. We need power. We need transportation. We need mobility. We need comms. And I'm sure we're going to talk about a lot of those things. But yeah. if, if you're thinking about a new player to the space, and DARPA is a relatively new player to this space, um, space pun intended, I suppose, um, we, we, are, we are working closely with NASA to figure mm -hmm. out what are the right questions to ask, but it's still a really big problem. And so Luna 10, we wanted to start by asking a more fundamental question than perhaps how do I advance just power or how do mm -hmm. I advance just comms? It's let me look at the big picture that I'm trying to create. And so you mentioned uh, Luna 10, the 10 in that name is meant to impose 10 years after Artemis 3 or 2035. So if I yeah. set 2035 as the goal, and now I want to work backward from there to where we are today and take an umbrella look at what are the all of the technology challenges that we need to solve, and then look at an all of government approach, not just DARPA, uh, not just NASA, but commercial as well, what are the problems that we need to solve? And so that's really what I'm hoping to come away with from the Luna 10 initiative, is what are the next moves that we should make to close on that 2035 timeline? And that, I think, would look perhaps more like a traditional DARPA program. But we wanted to take a top-down view of the whole ecosystem that includes commercial, includes government, includes mm -hmm. international, and then see what are the key problems that we need to solve to get to 2035 in that lunar economy. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I guess you know, one of the questions that I've seen come up is, why is DARPA the one doing this. I think you know people are excited that it's it's happening, but it's just not obvious why you know this is within DARPA or even within DOD for that matter. Fair enough. I think that's a really good question, right? Because this is a a new thrust, if you will. So uh, you know, let me start by saying that I think most people know DARPA as a military organization, but mm -hmm. you, you know what I'm here to say is that I think that's quite one dimensional because really. 
and this is the answer to your question, what DARPA is really chartered to do, the reason that the agency exists at all, is to prevent strategic surprise. You're familiar mm -hmm. with that mission yes. statement, of course. But to do that, above anything else, DARPA really cares about funding technological acceleration that changes a paradigm. That's very much in the DNA of this agency, technological acceleration that changes paradigm. So we're, we're a catalyst agent. We play mm -hmm. a role and then we leave. And so I think that's, so what's key to why DARPA is the question of what can we provide? Now, for the lunar problem, I wanna mm -hmm. say that, you know, it, it will always be NASA for the US government that's leading our efforts to go and land and live and explore on the moon. What DARPA brings is the ability to consider new approaches to the problem. So to act as a bit of a technology accelerator, we would like to take risk on behalf of the government, technical risk, that no one else can take, that NASA perhaps prefers not to take. And then to the commercial community, uh, our job can be to provide them with technology options that accelerate their existing plans to go to the moon. So, you know, why DARPA? You want, I, I think, to, to accelerate this venture, to get to the end goal, you want a partner that can take significant risk, quickly demonstrate something as possible, and then get out of the way for an enduring partner, whether that's you know NASA or a billionaire or venture capital, to make the remainder of the investment. And so that's what you know that, that's one of the things that DARPA has done really well for multiple fields, right? Not just defense. We did this for the internet, uh, and then also for things like the COVID vaccine and mRNA, uh, and then of course your defense applications. So if you're looking for a technological acceleration that changes an existing paradigm. I would say that is very much in DARPA's DNA. And I think in looking at the lunar community, we felt that there was a real opportunity for te technological acceleration to get to this goal of a, uh, a shared lunar infrastructure and civil economy. So that's what DARPA is hoping to catalyze. Right. And, and so, you know, it says in your bio or other people have said that you lead the lunar portfolio. Is the lunar portfolio this one program or is there a, a suite of activities beyond this? Yes. Um, so uh, let me bring to your uh, logic up. So um, DARPA just launched another effort, a parallel effort called Logic. Um, and Logic is aimed at consortium standards. Um, and we've actually done this before um, mm -hmm. with a program called RSGS. And that was meant to look at satellite servicing from a technology perspective. And so you can think of that as what Luna 10 is trying to do for the moon from a technology perspective. But RSGS um, spawned this sister program called CONFERS. And CONFERS was a consortium that was meant to develop standards for anybody to do satellite servicing. And that's a standalone community today that DARPA has backed away from, right? We've, I think we, we did our catalyst thing and it's, it's, it's working well. So that's what logic is intended to do. Luna 10 is going to be the technology piece. Logic is going to be the consortium piece. So that's going to develop the standards for future commercial interoperability. So that's our next lunar play. Now, at, together, right? So we've got standards, logic, technology development, Luna 10. What comes next? Um, that is an open question. And I think that's a good thing, right? We want yeah. what we learn from Luna 10 and logic to drive what should be next in this portfolio. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out the answer as well. And, and what's the status of, of Luna 10 now? You, you had an initial set of, I think, three-page 
uh, submissions with a follow-on meeting for participants. So to the degree you can, what, what came out of that and, and what are the next steps? Yeah, great question. And it's perfect timing, Tim, because uh, it's you know Thursday, November 9th today. And mm -hmm. two weeks from today, um, we are planning to award contracts. No later than two weeks from today. So the week after Thanksgiving uh, here in D.C., we're going to have the kickoff for Luna 10. So uh, as you mentioned, we got we got kind of hundreds of three-page submissions. We boil that down to a few dozen um, uh, proposals, uh, more detailed white papers and technical presentations. And from that, we selected two, uh, 14 companies. Uh, these are exemplars, representatives of the lunar community. And that's mm -hmm. who we're awarding uh, in two weeks and getting started with in three weeks. And from that three weeks from now, Tim, uh, it's a seven-month race to the finish line. And so in seven months, I hope to be able to answer that question that you asked me earlier, which is, what is DARPA's next investment, if anything? Um, where are we going with the lunar economy? Uh, we hope to have an answer uh, six months from three weeks from now. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I may actually circle back around for, for a follow-on conversation, and we'll see how Please much do. you're... Thinking yeah. has has changed at that point. So, you know, what are you, you you started to address this, but what are you hoping the final outcome of this project will be? What what would success for Luna Ten look like before you move on to whatever's next? Absolutely. Okay. So you asked me a very specific question. I'm an engineer. I'm going to give you a very specific answer. <laughs> uh, let me know if I'm if I'm diving too sure. deep. Sure. Um, but okay. So we. Uh, as I said, we got hundreds of submissions from the community. We selected 14 companies, and we boiled those down into six key areas. And um, and those those are not meant to be all encompassing, but you know that's that's a good a good subsection of what the lunar. Can you rattle those off? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, lunar power mm -hmm. can't do much without power. Um, transportation and logistics. Logistics being the lifeblood of an economy. That's number two. Uh, number three is construction and robotics. You can imagine mm -hmm. that the, we got to build and we got to do so robotically. Number four is mining and commercial ISRU or in situ resource mm -hmm. utilization. So what is the stuff that we're actually bringing back to the earth? How are we making lives better here on earth? What's the what's the product from the moon? Um, and then we have comms, navigation and position and timing. So I'm sort of rolling all of those together. What you think of as PNT, position, navigation, timing and mm -hmm. communications. The more robotics you have on the moon, the, the less of a latency that you can accept in your communication. So we, we right. think that's a, an area of exploration and a product. And then finally is market analysis. And, you know, I um, I really want to hammer that home because that's that also goes back to your question of why DARPA. One of the things we do really well is incentivize the commercial community. Um, and we, we understand that the timing and funding constraints that they're under. And so we, we try to pose programs that um, are synergistic with their existing goals. And so we're going to underline all of the everything I just said with market analysis, which is how much product do I need to create to create a product, to create a, a profit, excuse me. Mm -hmm. right? in, in other words, um, how can I move from a lunar ecosystem to a lunar economy? OK, so those are kind of the six areas that we're going to address. Um, and each of those you can think of as a product uh, for yeah. power. It's watts for, you know, construction, it's kilograms, so on and so forth. So bringing all those six areas together and understanding each, let me um, what I'm hoping to get out of Luna 10 is to answer key questions. So 
since I was specific with the areas, I'll say, I want to answer how many kilograms of resources can we mine and sell back to Earth? Now, if I back that up one, I need some amount of power to fuel that resource. So I want to know how many watts do I need to provide in order to get that number of kilograms. In order to fuel that lunar power, moving backward from there, I need to bring a power unit of some kind from the Earth. So how much is that going to cost me in transport and mobility? How do I move it around the lunar surface? If I back that up one, it all comes back to market analysis. And then I'd like to close back around, right? Because market analysis now feeds into the product, right? I've, I've made the investment to transport stuff to the moon, to create power on the moon, to f- power mining. And now I'm getting resources back and selling them into a free market economy. So that's the closing of that circle, if you will. Right. right? So how does all that fit together? And what are the critical masses that we need for each of those transportation, power, Mm -hmm. resources in order to make money? And then how much scaling does it take to make all of that self-sustaining? I don't think we know the answer to that yet to the level of watts, grams, bytes and dollars. So I would like to put numbers to that and say, we, we've got a lot of numbers floating around for the cislunar economy, right? 97 billion, 150 billion. <laughs> this will actually be a engineering constrained with these products. Here are our limitations. Here are the dollars we can make. Here's the product we can provide. Now, how does that scale to this, to this big city, big lunar? Um, you know, we've got to start yeah. somewhere. That's what I'm trying to flesh out, Tim. That, the, the, the specific numbers to those questions, and I, I only listed a few areas, there's other areas that feed in that we talked about, um, but implicit in that setup are numbers that make a difference. And so what are the critical masses to make this self-perpetuating? You know, that's what we're going to study with very specific companies that have thought about it in their own little yeah. silos. So we'd like to bring them together and say, okay, now it's not just you, um, transportation company, it's not just you, power company. Work together, and what can you sell to them, and what can you sell back on Earth? <laughs> and then, you know, maybe with that answer, we can actually figure out how do we get, the, how, what should government fund, what should commercial fund? Right. Yeah. H- how can you, you know, maybe as a space tourist, uh, plug into that economy? Yeah, so, I mean, you, you've actually put in an interesting assumption there, which I'm not saying is wrong, but that there's something to sell back to Earth, which I've heard... Oh different ideas about it. I think <laughs> at, at, at some price point, the the lunar tourism thing, that circle does close. But I've, I've heard a lot more debate about, is there anything that people would want to bring back uh-huh. from the moon? So, I mean, helium three is the, the mining thing that I hear come up the most. And, you know, that is usually linked to power generation on the moon but i i guess you know you'll have more to say you know when we talk again in in six to nine months but you know yeah do you have a first pass thought about what are things that (laughs) people on earth might want from the moon tim here's why i think you've asked the question because i've talked to a number of seed investors venture capitalist folks and they're asking the exact same question but they're asking it with their wallets so They want to know, I'm sorry, I just don't see how I'm going to get like uh, how I'm going to turn your company into the next Uber 
on the moon. I just don't see it <laughs> because what are you bringing back, right? So, so there's this reticence on the part of the venture capitalist community to toss themselves into the into the foray, right? Um, and that's because we are they are asking the same question and they don't have an answer. So let me give you let me give you my answer. And mm-hmm. yes, please do check back with me in six months when I have you know 14 stellar companies doing uh, yes. incredible uh, closure, you know, engineering closure. Okay, so what I'm going to do for a moment, if it's okay with you, is I'm going to take my DARPA PM hat off. I'm going to put my planetary scientist hat on. Okay, awesome. so you mentioned I earlier, um, I am a planetary scientist by background. Uh, my doctoral work was actually studying the moon. So if I put my planetary scientist hat on, I will argue with you all day about my opinions on helium-3 and water, mm-hmm. right? And and I will say that there's, um, you've heard the phrase, for every PhD, there's an equal and opposite PhD. Uh, so you know, <laughs> I haven't, but I'm going to start using that. There are absolutely camps, right? There's camps that have opinions about helium-3 and others that disagree. There's mm-hmm. camps that believe there's water on the moon down to a meter. And then there's thermal models. Uh, so, you know. And then there's thermal engineers who will say, well, actually, you know, water lives at about 110 Kelvin, 10 meters down, which means it's an order of magnitude harder for you to get at it. Right. Right. So we don't know what the real answer is. We don't know if it's one meters or 10 meters. We don't know if helium three is abundant or not. Right. Nobody knows. But here's the key. In the next five to 10 years, as you well know, we've got, you know, dozens dozens of landers, commercial and government, that are going to go to the surface and find the answers, right? So we're going to know those answers very soon. Here's the question I would pose, right? Is if if you knew there was gold at the end of the rainbow, would you start preparing now or would you wait? Now, you could put the venture capitalist community is choosing to wait, right? And I think that's okay. But we would like to create a lunar economy that is robust to those considerations. So can we focus on the things that we know for sure exist on the moon? So here's what we know for sure, right? And then anything else that is added on, whether that's water or helium-3 or any other resource just sort of builds on this baseline. And if I, mm-hmm. if you can believe the baseline that anything else is, is good, right? If we find it. Mm-hmm. And the, the moon is, is absolutely three things. It is one of the most RF quiet environments in the solar system. Uh, on the um, on the non-lit side of the moon, on the far side of the moon, right? So that is a great place to do things like radio astronomy right. and gather products that we cannot get here on Earth. The second is aluminum and silicon in the regolith, right? That we, we know that exists from the Apollo days. We know that we can, I'm going to use the term very loosely, but mine it, <laughs> and it's right there on the surface, which means that we can create materials on the moon would be extremely expensive to build on Earth, put in a launch vehicle, and carry all the way to the moon, which means we're creating this economy of in-space manufacturing, right, based on lunar materials. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just the, the fact of the existence of the moon as, a, as an experiment lab, as a, as a laboratory for science. Now, if we can make a product out of that, where, and by that I mean A cells to B, B cells to C, C brings it home to Earth. Mm-hmm. That is the start of a lunar economy. And then we can build from there with resources once we know specifically that they exist. So building that baseline is what the Luna 10 study is all about. Can we enable the near-term maturation of the technologies and capabilities that would be necessary for any architecture objective, 
right? Whether that's big or small. And then we can include the perspectives of both, you know, lunar providers and users. That's very much the question that we're trying to ask. So my apologies for giving you a, a my, my planetary scientist answer, right? But I think it's an open question. And that's absolutely true from a science perspective. But from an economic perspective, there are some things that we know are absolutes. So let's start with that. Let's base an economy around that. Let's see if it closes. And if it doesn't, then you know, then we know that the market trend needs to support some endemic resource that we don't, that we need, go, we need to go and confirm. So, you know, through this project, we're looking at the importance of the moon primarily through an economic lens. Mm -hmm. What do we need to do to close the, the economic cases? Are there other reasons that you think the, the moon may be important? There, um, I'm sure that there are from a science and technology perspective, but that's mm -hmm. not something that uh, that we're planning to address. I think NASA has done a great job and will continue to do a great job on that. Um, for DARPA, we are specifically very focused on the commercial lunar economy. That's what this study is focused on. No, that makes sense. But you know, a, a lot of this seems to be happening in the context of a competition with China, or at the very least, that that's what often seems to motivate Congress to fund activities on the moon and, and is likely to be one of the drivers of, of funding in the future. So I, I think it's an interesting you know, question. If we just let China sort of kick things off, so you know, maybe we'd be losing out on economic value, but you know, I'm, I'm playing a little bit of, of devil's advocate here, obviously. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. You know, I'm interested in this stuff since I have a podcast about it, but <laughs> You know, some people like, might say, you know, let, let the Chinese spend the money on this. And, you know, if the economic case closes eventually, we, we can get there. But, you know, why is there this competition? Is it just about money or are there other sort of geostrategic uh, reasons to engage with, uh, you know, cislunar space and a cislunar economy? Yeah, I, I am asking you to speculate a little beyond your, <laughs> your role at DARPA, but we'll we'll say this does not represent the opinion of the Department of Defense and is merely the musings of uh, Dr. Michael Orbit Nyack. <laughs> well, boy, the the musings of Dr. Michael Orbit Nyack can go far and deep, Tim. Absolutely, <laughs> that's um, why we're here. Yeah, we want them. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's 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 a good question. Now, what I will say is, you know, DARPA has been working closely with all government agencies. And that's to include, you know, the Office of Science and Technology Policy and DOD mm -hmm. Policy. And these are the organizations with NASA, the Artemis Accords, the State Department that are that are really leading that the answer to your question, uh, mm -hmm. which is which is geopolitics from a from a DARPA perspective, really what we care about is technology. And, you know, the wonderful thing about technology is it's agnostic, right? If we mm -hmm. can accelerate technology, um, and, and, and DARPA does such a great job of this in its technology development. We really care about dual use, right? Which is, take the internet, for example. We wanted to build a communication infrastructure, and today, well, boy, it's, it's just everywhere, right? So yeah. I, I think that's important because, and this goes back to actually your first question, which is, what is, what is DARPA's role here mm -hmm. as a catalyst for technology? I think it's our job to get in there and try to support the, you know, this efficient, combined, fast, you know, generation this generation, not generation next, uh, delivery of this lunar economy and a framework that goes with it. But you're right, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. 
our framework is intended for future use by, you know, the United States and any nation um, that is that is committed to the peaceful use of the moon. Right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and just as a, a mechanical question, did the project exist before you came to DARPA or did you come to DARPA with an idea for a project? How did this actually mechanically come into being? Yeah. Um, so this is the wonderful part about DARPA, Tim. You know, we don't have any requirements. The agency does not have any big goals, any things that it has to invest in. It's purely uh, PM driven, program manager driven. I think yeah. that's one of the big reasons I wanted to come here. So uh, in answer to your question, uh, when I interviewed for this job, uh, my interview prompt was, how are you going to change the world? What oh. is the program that you're going to pitch that's going to change the world? And I had some ideas. Um, mm -hmm. I had some ideas about a, a liquid mirror telescope for astronomy. Uh, and I, I managed to turn that into a program. And then, um, you know, they said, hey, don't just have one idea. Have like a, a couple of ideas so that if your mm -hmm. first idea is no good or whatever, you know, they can ask, what else do you want to do? So when I came to the interview, I built my, uh, my primary pitch around this liquid mirror telescope. And then they said, okay, what else you got? And I said, well, <laughs> and I went to my very last slide where I had kind of a cartoon of, of the moon. Uh, and I said, you know, we've been talking about the lunar economy since since 1974. Um, uh, there's actually this this conference that NASA pulled together right after the Apollo program that said, OK, what are lunar bases going to look like in the 21st century? I had a picture of that book in my my interview slides. And I said, you know, a lot of this these ideas uh, still haven't been touched. Um, so, you know, what if we did, what if we incentivize that? What if we catalyze that? Uh, and I would say that, um, you know, the, the office director who was kind enough to hire me, my boss today, um, mm -hmm. Dr. Phil Root, he's the director of the strategic technology office. Um, he saw something in that. And so he said, okay, uh, what's the play? What, 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 what is the technology goal that you think we need to achieve? What are the questions we need to answer? And I promptly put my planetary scientist hat on and rolled out a hundred questions. He said, okay. How can we how can we frame a program uh, that can perhaps, you know, figure out which of those questions are the truly important, you know, paradigm shifting questions. And so, you know, that's what brought about Luna 10. That's awesome. So we <laughs> we can thank you personally to some degree for, well, for this I, project. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far. I would say that Dr. Root has been a huge leader yeah. uh, in that. So, you know, the, the but the, yeah, the, the, the structure of DARPA is such that it's the program manager the office director and the DARPA. director of DARPA. Those are the people that need to kind of agree on an idea. And uh, and if they agree, and I've, I've had the privilege of terrific support uh, from both of those folks, here we are. That, that, that's a nice transition into where I wanted to go next, which was looking a little bit about into DARPA as an institution, its history. So what role has DARPA played in the development of the space sector more broadly? Yeah, um, it's a terrific question because DARPA really has this shared DNA that is so cool. It goes right back to the start of the space age, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, for 65 years, they've had this crucial role in de-risking technologies pivotal to civil space. So some of the efforts that I think I'll start with what most people are familiar with, which is um, the Internet, but really specific to space. Um, mm -hmm. What was then ARPA, today DARPA, uh, had a launch vehicle program. Uh, and that's in its initial booster technology, which was called Juno 5, actually led to Saturn 5, which, of course, mm. is famous for taking humans to the moon. 
Um, then they launched Transit, which became the world's first, you know, global satellite navigation system. Today, GPS. Um, and then, you know, more recently, DARPA actually uh, held the first government contract for SpaceX to launch its Falcon 1. Uh, our goal, right. of course, was to try to get small put payloads into space, you know, quickly and cheaply. But that contract really led to insights that, you know, Falcon 1 and today there's Falcon 9 and Starship and they're really off and running. Um, and then finally, you know, more recently, I think DARPA and NASA announced their collaboration on this nuclear thermal rocket engine uh, yeah. called Draco. I think it stands for Demonstration Rocket for Agile Cislunar Operations. But, you know, how do we get to Mars uh, without carrying a whole bunch of fuel? Perhaps it's something like nuclear thermal propulsion. And so um, that that partnership will hopefully power long duration spaceflight even into the future. So that's sort of the shared DNA that I think has gone through all of this and that kind of wraps back to my my dual use right it's if yeah. technology is agnostic um if we can accelerate technology we open up avenues that perhaps we didn't even think was possible so that's very much been in the dna and luna 10 yeah. is just you know the latest effort that hopes i hope to continue that amazing tradition um and keep it going yeah. and so you know darpa is, is known for making science fiction into reality <laughs> What lessons have you learned or what lessons do you see from DARPA on making the impossible possible? That's a terrific question. Um, I would say now I'm, I'm about a, a year and a half into my uh, limited tenure. Um, here's here's my opinion. The first thing is that that limited tenure is really important. Um, the fact that I have um, Actually, if you could see my DARPA badge, it has a bright red expiry date on the bottom. That is the day when I, uh, I can no longer badge in. And so whatever I came here to do needs to be done by that date. And so I think yeah. that really motivates not just me, but the people around me to really try and, and make as big an impact as possible. And that's really one of the things that makes sci-fi into reality, right? We're very motivated to quickly fail. Failure is okay. Um, but as long as we do it quickly, then we learn something and we can move on to perhaps our next big bet. Um, so that's, you know, that's part of why Luna 10 is just seven months. I want to I want to know the answer so that I can you know, know what the next move should be. I think that's key. Um, then another thing of making sci fi reality is. The willingness to fail, which is that failure is not failure. Failure is learning. And so as long as you fail with purpose, the only I would say sin is to fail and, and and have that be predictable, right? Like, well, if you'd mm -hmm. sat down and thought about it, you actually could have predicted that this is the way it was gonna go. So so we, we put a lot of effort into the, you know, the Heilmeyer questions that you may have heard of, which is just a way of framing a problem, which is how do we do it today? And what what is the end state we would like to get to? And then what is the key insight? What is the reason we can get there? Um, and, and jump on that reason and develop that or fail on that as quickly as possible. I think that's the key. Um, and as an example, I'll say, you know, my partner is always joking with me and she's saying, uh, hey, how are you guys at DARPA working on teleportation? Can we can we get a head start on that? I'd say, well, the physics aren't quite there yet. I, I have the end state, but I don't have the insight. And so, you know, there's nothing that we can develop that at least I'm aware of that could get us there. So that key way of asking the question in such a way that even failure is an answer. I think that is yeah. very, very important uh, to the way the DARPA thinks and the insights that it's been able to have. That's great. 
And how do you see the military's role in the space sector evolving? So traditionally, militaries have been the primary actors in space beyond a, a small amount of civilian government activity. But now we have a self-sustaining low-Earth orbit economy um, and the beginnings, as we've been talking about, of commercial activities in cislunar space. So how does the expansion of non-military activities in space affect the military's role, if at all? And, and what do you think, you know, 10 years from now, that role of the military will be? You know, Tim, I wish I had an answer. And I don't. <laughs> to be honest, with you, I don't. I, yeah. All I have are opinions. Uh, but, you know, the way we see it is that the spread of commercial, because the, the Leo economy has showed us so much about what's possible. And so I would really like to ask the question, how do we move that outward? Right now, Leo is relatively close to Earth. That's 200 to 500 kilometers up above our heads. You could argue that if there's a problem, I can solve it quickly. I can iterate. It gets so much harder the farther and farther you get. So I think yeah. that, you know, th those are the questions that DARPA is focused on. Um, and, and we want to just take some risks and embrace failure along the way and see what technology questions we can take off the table and, and you know, let, let future make itself. Yeah. So do you see a self-sustaining deep space economy developing in the future? And how might that come about? Do I? I absolutely do. I think mm -hmm. uh, I, I would love to see that now. That that is just Mikey Nyack's opinion. So can mm -hmm. we can we actually get to a deep space economy? I think it's possible, but I think that there's a lot of technology development that needs to happen between here and there, right? And that is going to be a combination of both government and commercial investment. And it's going to be a series of failures. Now, this is sort of wrapping into your, your earlier question of like, where, where can, what have we learned from the Leo economy that we can yeah. take outward? And I think we've learned that we need to build partnerships. In other words, if one agency or one sponsor is taking all of the risk, then if they get wiped out, the, the effort ends. And so I think it's important to work in partnership with agencies like NASA, but also commercial industry. There's academic, uh, there, there's universities that are launching CubeSats today. What could all of those, how can we lower the barrier to entry for all of those players? So we have as diverse a player space as possible. And that even when we fail, the overall effort keeps going. So I think as long as we focus on partnerships, we can actually, yeah. I, I do believe that that offer of economic vibrancy is, um, is plausible and, and, and likely possible. I think the thing that underlines all of that, right, what, what brings non-governmental agencies to the table? Mm -hmm. I think it's an, an economic perspective. And so that's part of the reason why, you know, we chose to um, focus Luna 10 on the commercial economy. Because if there's a reason that is not, oh, the government has, has a contract open or Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if there's another reason for companies to take that risk themselves, if there's a return, they absolutely will do that, right? And then the Leo economy has shown us that. If yeah. one company proves a business model, there will absolutely be a proliferation of business models. And so I think we need to be failure tolerant, but we also need to focus on those monetizable commercial services in deep space. So Leo, everything's supporting the Earth. There's an Earth right. economy today. You can make that one-to-one -one connection. Yeah. What does the economy look like as we get farther and farther from the Earth? I think it's based around the moon for our you know, cislunar space. Um, and, then, and then Mars is another open question. And then as we go farther and farther, what are the resources? What is going to power the economy of the future? If we can answer that question, 
Tim, I think the answer to your question is absolutely we can get there. Just one more question this vein. And again, sort of the, the irresponsible musings of Dr. Nyack. When do you think or do you think ever that sort of the space mining, asteroid mining case closes? Because to me, that sort of seems like one of yeah. the ways that sort of beyond cis lunar space uh -huh. would begin to make economic sense. And as you say, catalyze non-governmental investment, which to me yeah. seems necessary to go really big. Right, right. So I, I would like to answer that question kind of the way that NASA is is aiming for Mars, which is I'm going to learn some lessons in my backyard on the moon. Mm -hmm. And so in Luna 10, for example, we have a construction and robotics and we have a mining and commercial ISRU thrust. We've yeah. selected some really, I think, industry leading companies who have thought about those very questions deeply, but they've mm -hmm. thought about it with respect to their product. And so in six months, I'm hoping that I can answer that question for our backyard, right? And then, and then, assuming that that case closes, which I would say is an open question, <laughs> um, what lessons can we learn and take to asteroids or Mars or beyond yeah. that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to that answer, but I think we got to start in our backyard and that's, that's our, this is our first attempt. Sure, that, that all makes a lot of sense. Switching gears, I, I'd love to hear a bit more about your personal journey. How did you become interested in space and how did you end <laughs> up working on this portfolio at DARPA? Yeah, absolutely. I have been uh, a space nerd for several years now. Uh, my, my very first job, actually, right out of college, mm -hmm. uh, was working at Kennedy Space Center, building, building rockets with my hands. Uh, I was a space shuttle, uh, space solid rocket booster engineer. So actually got to support five shuttle missions. Um, this is the, you know, kind of the height of the shuttle program. And that's really what just fired me up about space. Uh, I spent seven of the last 17 years at NASA in one capacity or another. And, you know, it never ceases to inspire just how it's crazy how quickly we've come. That's what that's what really got me. Um, this was in Florida. We used to go up to uh, to North Carolina, you know, on road trips. And, you know, you can drive by first flight airport and think about the fact that that was that was not even 200 years ago that we yeah. figured out how to fly. And now we're in space. And so, I don't know, I guess I have just, I've always been inspired by how quickly uh, we've made it normal that we fly around the world and pressurize cans and we mm -hmm. you know, take ourselves to space and bring ourselves back safely. Um, that inspires me. And all of the people who work on space, I think, share a similar motivation, which is, this is awesome. What's next? Yeah. The, the, the future seems limitless. And uh, I don't know, that that's what gets me going. And that's kind of what in all of the programs that I run in one way or another, I think have the thread of space. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a space nerd through and through. And actually, I, I guess I sh should have looked this up ahead of time, but it's not entirely clear to me. You've worked with a lot of military organizations are you uniformed military or are you a civilian working side by side by your <laughs> uniformed colleagues? Yes. Uh, so I have been both. Uh, mm -hmm. I started off working for NASA as a civilian and then I transitioned to the military. I am uh, currently an active duty military officer, mm -hmm. but I am uh, transitioning out of the service in the next few months. So I, yeah. I guess I've been both. What, what made you decide to join the military? <laughs> 
Well, you know, I wish I could say that I had a grand plan, but as I mentioned, <laughs> uh, I was as working on the shuttle program. I was fired up about the shuttle program, and then mm -hmm. uh, you know, in story time, uh, I, I was a test engineer on the Ares One X, which was the very first Constellation program rocket. And we, you know, we fired it off, and it didn't explode. And we thought to ourselves, "Boy, we've." We started the next generation. I've got a job for life. And then, as you know, um, Constellation was canceled. The space shuttle program was canceled. And I was like, whoa, all right, I guess I got to find a real job. And so <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed uh, flying. I still enjoy flying. And so I mm -hmm. thought to myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the Air Force and see if I can fly around in some pointy nose jets. <laughs> so that, that was my, my initial motivation was, uh, you know, uh, so there were, uh, a lot of NASA civilians that were, you know, needed to find a new job. And I thought, well, right. you know, instead of competing with them, I'll let me go try something else. And that's kind of it was very um, coincidental. And looking back, I would have tried to engineer it the way it worked out, but it was completely accidental. Yeah, but uh, that's often how the, the best careers happen. <laughs> Certainly. I'm, I'm so thankful. I could not have planned it this way. It just seemed like I wanted to pick a next job that was interesting and a next job that was interesting. And, and here we are. Yeah. And a question we sort of have started using more and more to, to close these things out. Do you think it's worthwhile to pursue humanity becoming a multi-planetary species? Why, why not? I absolutely believe it is worthwhile. And it's a great question as to why. I think a lot of people are right to ask, why aren't we focusing here on Earth? Um, NASA's answer is think about all of the investments that space technology has brought to the Earth. And I think they have mm -hmm. a very compelling case there. My personal reason for wanting to be a multi-planetary species mm -hmm. is that there's so much out there that we don't know. And um, being an astronomer um, and an astrophysicist by background, I know that we are, we are really limited by our field of view. If you think about it from a telescope point of view, where you are determines what you can look at. And in a way, it determines what you can know. The more and the farther that you can reach, the more we learn about ourselves as a species, right? How do we survive? How do we relate to each other when we're separated by more than just you know, 24 time zones? But also, what is, what is out there? What can we learn about the way that the universe evolved, the way that the, why is the solar system the way it is? These are questions that I think you can only answer um, when your field of view has moved from the Earth to somewhere else. And, you know, it, I think in our lifetimes, it's, it's not going to be very far. But if we can start that trend and it continues, you know, as a species, who knows where we could go? And that, that again, that brings me back to why I'm a space nerd is that limitless future. I love that. That that's beautiful, and especially in a moment where there's a lot of concerning things happening, it, it, it's really great to keep one's eye on the fact that there is so much potential out there. Absolutely, um, there's a lot to be said for the peaceful use of of outer space. Absolutely, and just b before we finish, are there any other things that you? think our audience should be aware of or anything else that you want to share? Yeah, I think, Tim, the, the last thing I would like to say about Luna 10 is that, um, and, and really just DARPA's lunar portfolio in general, is um, this has always been a performer-driven ship. And what that means is we ask the questions, but we're not the ones providing the answers. And so mm -hmm. 
I think it's really important to be involved with the lunar community as widely as we can. There are people who have been thinking about these problems for years, right? Long before uh, I was even a space nerd. And so um, one thing that I'm trying to do with logic, for example, is to involve the community as much as possible and say, here's what we're thinking. What are your inputs? And I think it's really important to not just keep those inputs limited to us. In other words, not just the government, but government and commercial, not just the U.S., but you know, U.S. and international. Together, my hope is that we can find this, this common framework that emphasizes these models of economic activity. Think of it as a rising tide that lifts all lunar vessels, right? So the more, <laughs> the more lunar ships we can get involved, the better. And so that's, that's my goal through Luna 10 and Logic, um, and even if there's a, a future effort. That's, that's a, a wonderful note to close on. Uh, Dr. Nayak, it was great talking, and I look forward to continuing the conversation, hopefully in about nine months. Yeah, thank you, Tim. I appreciate your time. This has been really fun, and uh, you know, here's to a multi-planetary society. Absolutely. Thank you to Dr. Nayak for joining the Multi-Planetary Society podcast, and thank you to all of our listeners. If you like this content, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to ensure you don't miss an episode and leave a review to help other people find it. If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, feel free to email us at multiplanetarysociety, all one word with no dashes, at gmail.com.